Hello, my name is Nicholas Chin, and you're listening to the International Relations Society's podcast, The Beacon. With me today is Masood Abano, author of Breakdown in Pakistan, How Aid is Eroding Institutions for Collective Action. She's here to talk to us about aid effectiveness and what we can do to make sure aid is more effective and how, and looking at how we donate money as well. So, Masuda, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, my first question really is, what's the biggest impact you've observed from increasing Western aid over time? I think, uh, of course, this question one can take in different way, uh, different levels. Um, I won't talk about the impact of aid uh, because that might imply making some objective statements about uh, how aid has impacted in different contexts. Uh, that requires a slightly different kind of statistical uh, data. I'll, I'd like to address it more at a broader level of agenda setting, how Western development aid has influenced agenda setting in terms of what development should mean in different country contexts and globally, you know, what it should mean. And I think that's where a bit of achievement of aid has to be recognized that um, uh, this discourse on development through aid agencies promoted in many developing countries has brought certain the importance of social sectors which were traditionally a bit neglected by social sectors i mean education health uh, women uh, well-being especially uh, mother and child health these kind of issues which were traditionally if you look before 1980s might not be that high on agenda of many developing countries because of consistent uh, like messages coming from global uh, development community have become very mainstream so even if you look at countries like pakistan or nigeria which are doing quite low in terms of human development even today at least in terms of government policy documents, the recognition is there that these agendas have to be prioritized. Health, education, uh, mother and child health, uh, these kind of issues have to become the priority of, of governments. So I think at that level, uh, aid has had, uh, all aid or development agencies in general mm. have had some positive contribution despite all the challenges that might be there, which we'll discuss in a yeah. minute. Uh, so one of the kind of biggest challenges of aid that your research has shown is a negative relationship between foreign aid and local volunteering in the countries that receive aid. Why do you think that people's willingness to volunteer declines as their countries receive aid? That's why that's the main question that I'm very passionate about in my research when I look at aid effectiveness. Uh, because like I said, um, um, uh, one thing that the aid community has done is to bring the importance of social sector on the main agenda of these countries. Um, but a related debate that has been promoted a lot through, uh, through aid uh, agencies um, is this idea of importance of civil society. So states alone cannot do everything. Um, there's need for a vibrant civil society, uh, partly to have a promote the democratic culture, because if you have a strong civil society, people will get opportunity to voice their concerns and governments will be more accountable. So that's one argument. Um, but equally importantly, a civil society or NGOs, um, uh, voluntary organizations are seen as very important uh, ways to deliver development. So they actually go, they can reach rural communities, which government might not be able to reach. They can build trust with certain kind of communities where you know which uh, traditionally might not be accessible by the government so uh, donors have ended up emphasizing a lot the importance of working through NGOs these non-governmental organizations mm. so my work is specifically focused on that aspect of it yeah. um, in more detail and what we have seen um, a lot of literature has come up since 1990s, which is which has shown that actually when aid comes in, a lot of these NGOs actually lose their members, which is very ironical and very sad because aid is coming in partly to promote this community culture, to bring people together, to work for a good cause. But what we see repeatedly is that it is breaking down um, that trust and, um, and um, mutual cooperation. And my whole book is very much about explaining that in detail, but I'll briefly sum up my argument. And the main uh, sort of through evidence what I tell you in the case of Pakistan is this that um, aid ends up 
when aid comes in, the uh, it comes with very strong uh, financial incentives for the leaders of these organizations. So as a result, like most donor agencies will give these NGOs uh, uh, big good salaries, um, uh, big cars, money to establish good offices. Of course, development agencies give this money, hoping that this will increase the people's commitment. It will make their work more efficient if they have the latest cars, all of that. But actually what happens is that within the community, the fact that these leaders start getting this money, a lot of distrust starts. People don't are no longer convinced that they're doing the work because of commitment. They feel they're doing it just to get these big salaries. So within the group, the dynamics change completely. Secondly, um, apart from this loss of trust within the community, what happens is that even the, and, and I give you examples in the book, even those organizations which before the receive of aid were very uh, like participatory, very accountable to their members. What we see is one aid money comes in. Uh, these uh, leaders of these organizations, they don't want to share accounts with the public. You know, so money brings in all this vested interest, vested sort of uh, motives um, uh, and a bit of this uh, desire of these leaders not to share accounts, this downward accountability disappears and that in the long term it really breaks down cooperation so we have a lot of evidence that aid coming in has a very negative influence on local community mobilization okay but do you think that the positive effects of foreign aid can outweigh any decline in local volunteering that they might cause I mean, that's a very legitimate question to ask, exactly, because the argument could be that if fine, some erosion of local participation might happen, but maybe these NGOs, because they get all this big money and, and big project money um, and resources at their disposal, they can do more work like you're asking. So maybe then we can say a bit of erosion of um, of uh, volunteering work is not good. But actually in this book, that's the, the other important point I establish is that when you compare work of those organizations which are not taking donor money, which are still volunteering and relying on local donations and volunteers, and the other NGOs, uh, like 20 I took uh, of each type, one which is locally entirely funded, the others which were taking development money, you find that actually the one which are relying on local money are actually better at delivering services too. So do you understand? Yes. So the argument yeah. that oh, decrease in volunteering um, uh, can be ignored does not remain true because even the performance of the other one is better. And I have to explain a bit here when I what I mean by uh, by performance because again performance can be measured in many different ways. The way I looked at it, one of the main things was sustainability. Which of these organizations are able to consistently work on a, on a cause? We see in NGOs again and again that it's a very short cycle. As long as donor money is there, they'll work with the community. As soon as money finishes, they run after another donor. So there's no sustainability of that work. The voluntary organizations, on the other hand, are very committed to specific communities, long-term agendas, which makes a lot of difference in what they achieve in the long term. Yeah. So given that we see that organizations that receive aid are generally less effective than those that don't, mm -hmm. is there an inherent issue with foreign aid? Or is it just in the manner of delivery as foreign aid currently exists? I think there are two things here. Um, uh, a part of me and some academic, some uh, people writing on aid have taken that position that it's in aid is inherently problematic, so we should just get rid of it. I mean, there are positions like that that exist. Initially, when I was looking at this uh, particular, uh, when I was working on this particular book, I partly had started to feel the same, that maybe there's just no way to fix it because it's, we are dealing with very fundamental issues about changing people's motivation um, uh, and, and there's no way to avoid it partly because, uh, see, donor... Uh, and in order to understand that, we have to question, why do donors um, end up having this impact? The, the problem is this, that the issue is very structurally flawed. Donor agencies, the only way they can motivate local counterparts to, to deliver what the donor agencies want to, uh, to deliver is by paying them some salaries. Because otherwise, if the donors don't offer those kind of salaries, the local counterpart, they have no 
influence on the local counterpart. Do you understand? So in some way, even donors, when they go in these countries, they go with the preset agenda, which is another problem with donor agencies. Often they, they make plans in the, Western, in the West, sitting with Western ideas, and then they take that model overseas. Um, so when they try to sell it to local counterparts, often it might not be a very popular agenda. So then what do you do? You start buying these NGOs. That's what is actually happening. You know, they become contractors for these donors. So now can we change that model? Of course, if donors uh, want to become much more consultative, uh, they want to devolve downwards, power downwards to the communities, if they really become committed to that, some of these uh, things, challenges might be overcome. But it's uh, but logically thinking, it's very difficult. Do you understand? Because of course, money is coming from this side. So the power is, is a bit skewed at this mm -hmm. side. Um, and uh, the plans still take place here. It, uh, there's a lot of discourse in development today about local participation, consultation, but we still know major planning happens here. Uh, over there, the implementation happens. So if that's the case, it's very difficult to see how you can really fix these fundamental problems. Because as soon as you go give more local accountability, uh, yes, some of this participation problem might uh, uh, become better, but might improve, but that will require giving up a lot of power in the hands of the donors. And will they like to do that? I'm not sure. So are donors then, to an extent, guilty of elitism in that they come up with plans from so far away and are unwilling to negotiate with local organisations to improve them? Yes. So I think they are. Uh, and that might sound harsh because, again, if you look at the discourse of development or the documents of the development agencies, because of these kind of criticisms, uh, in the last 10 years, uh, all the documents will say, oh, we must have local participation, whether it's DFID, it's World Bank. And I'm sure some of them are sincere about these, you know, wanting to do this. But actually, we also know through our research, many other people have written, not just me, that uh, when uh, uh, this participation remains very superficial. So what happens is that, yes, they'll go and have consultations in the in, in the capitals of these countries. Again, a lot of elites from the local elites turn up at these meetings and a certain agenda, a discussion takes place, but it ends up reconfirming the original agenda. It doesn't change it. So for example, I'll give you a specific example. If you're talking about issues of women empowerment, in if you go in a country like Pakistan or Northern Nigeria, where a lot of people are Muslim, majority is Muslim, so they might have a very different conception of, uh, of gender equality. But uh, so in some way, donors need to engage with that if they want to convince that community. But in, but for them, it's a bit difficult. It's a bit sensitive too, politically sensitive. So a lot of them will have a superficial discussion and in the end, just push the Western feminist agenda. And then the community doesn't come on board. So, it's, uh, so they end up just paying NGOs to do their work, which doesn't lead to long-term sustainable development. So what exactly could aid organizations and foreign governments do to ensure that aid is more effective? In this one, again, in the last chapter in this book, I tried to share some experience even of an intervention I designed, in fact, with different in northern Nigeria. It's an education intervention. And uh, over there, I tried to sort of practically trial can we sort of uh, avert some of the challenges uh, uh, that aid ends up having on local motivation, this, uh, you know, this vested interest that come in and all. And of course, there's some things that can be done. Um, and and I think in this one, like I said, first of all, an issue I've already emphasized is this, the donors have to become more open with the idea of uh, alternative discourses that other cultures other societies can have different conception of well-being um, so let's engage with them a bit more openly agenda should not be just set in the west you know so once they go there uh, it should not be an artificial discussion if they meet the local counterparts and they have different views they should 
engage with that genuinely and maybe the agenda might slightly change but they need to be uh, open to that because the reason I'm arguing that is that once there's a more buy-in into the uh, agenda I mean people generally get committed to it then you don't necessarily have to give them a lot of money to do the work do you understand that's when they volunt voluntarily start committing to things because they agree with those ideas uh, so uh, I think that will in itself be a big jump if they start becoming more open in setting the agenda and letting the whole local community have a voice so is the key then to have the agenda in place before the funding as opposed to the funding in place exactly the because to be honest you have really hit the hit the nail on the head is that the problem happens is that um, uh, donor agencies um, have this budget sets uh, certain uh, budgets approved they have to be spent just like any government budget like even in developing world by they have certain spending targets they have to find a suitable project within that time frame it must be implemented by a certain time money dispersed all of that so in a way you're looking to implement it rather the other way around where you have gone around discuss the general agenda and then brought funds for it so do you understand so a, yeah. quite a bit of rethinking can help on that front um in a lot of developing countries most uh, most local volunteerism occurs through religious organizations mm -hmm. through local churches or local exactly. mosques mm -hmm. um often these groups may have somewhat opposing views on um social issues to the aid organizations coming in can they do more to work together See, that's a, again a very excellent question because that links up to another book I did with a good friend of mine, uh, Sev, um, and it's uh, called uh, Religion in Development, Rewriting the Secular Script. And that's exactly what we, the issue we try to address here because just like I say that there's a bit of superficial engagement with uh, with a, a, a communities on the other end, like all donors, will, if you if you go to them, they'll all say, oh, we need to have discussion. We'll engage with the local counterpart, but it's very superficial. Ideas are not really fully taken on board. It's exactly the same thing we show in that book with the religious organization. So even here in the West, when they'll engage with the religious communities uh, or religiously based NGOs because they do try to do that now or even in the developing world when they do it's a very superficial engagement because it's the, uh, the donors would say they all now realize that religion is a powerful force we also have a lot of evidence that, that religious community NGOs are often they have more trust in the community so on issues like uh, um, uh, sensitive issues like family planning which in certain religious communities can be sensitive if you have um, uh, members of religious community lobbying on your part you can be much more effective so in some like donors are realizing that um, having religious communities can have working with them can be an advantage but still because most donor agencies are very secular and they run very under very secular you know, rational kind of uh, you know framework uh, there's this innovation to generally engage with uh, NGO, uh, religious organizations uh, so in the end you see again we are not seeing any genuine projects come out otherwise i think there's a lot of potential because a lot of developing countries it's uh, um, like christianity is known for all these churches uh, schools South Asia, Africa is full of that. Same for Islam. A lot of religious schools are there. A lot of work is done, welfare work is done in the name of Islam. So if you partner with them, a lot can be achieved. But I think, uh, there's, uh, and just like you said, I think the point that you were also making, that they can come with a different agenda. The problem is that they can often come with a different, slightly different agenda. So neither the secular donors nor NGO, um, these religious NGOs will say that education is bad. But for example, again a specific example, uh, in the Muslim context, many will say that um, men and women, uh, they should not be co-education. Now, uh, a lot of donors get a bit uncomfortable with that uh, because they think, you know, that might lead into inequality between gender while if you think look at it um, the main key is to get education so if you can agree on that agenda good partnership should be able to happen but that often don't happen because um, uh, the donors don't have that kind of flexibility um, do you think the onus is more on the donors to be flexible or the local organizations to be flexible in cases like this 
I think it's on more on the donors to be flexible. That, that and uh, the only reason I'm saying that, that they are the one who are trying to come in and say we want to do some good uh, and 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 uh, uh, facilitate further you know good work for uh, the local communities. The local communities are saying we are doing this is our culture, our society. We are going to do what we are doing anyway. So if you are coming in and you're bring, trying to help us, then help us on our terms. Do you understand? Yeah. That's the only difference because donors are the outsiders here. Um, and now of course it's a very contested debate, and I know some other academics in development will counter my work and they'll say that no but there has to be some universal preferences you know um, they, we should be above culture and all of that to some extent I agree with this argument but at the same time I think sometimes the secular sort of mindset can push too far yeah. in just thinking there's one way to do things while when you look at other cultures they might be willing to do very similar thing but on slightly different terms uh, so since donors are coming in they need to be a bit more responsive, uh, responsive if they want to be welcomed. So is it also to an extent about gradualism in terms of moving the social position slowly rather than trying to immediately implement western ideals? Completely so no I think uh, I don't necessarily have too much to comment on it because your observation is very accurate and um, in fact, a lot of work is showing that incremental change, what we call incremental change, is much better in changing institutions in the long term um, than uh, uh, radical reforms. Because often we are seeing is that where the state or uh, often states go in uh, in these developing countries uh, through some Western development backing, going for radical reform, uh, often that backfire because people in fact become a bit more uh, rigid in defending, the, they get scared and they get uh, more rigid in defending their turf. While incrementally, just like the same example, if you don't insist on co-education by just simple education, of course once women get education, even in single sex school, the next step will come, you know, they'll need to go and work. So most probably they'll work in mixed gender setting. So you have to allow one step gradually, gradually and more most probably, uh, that's the best approach. In terms of policy, what can be done that effectively bridges the gap or works to bridge the gap between developed and developing countries right now? Actually, that's a very big one. I wish we had the answers to that because then development, you know, will become uh, development studies or development policy will become much more uh, effective. Uh, because right now, of course, what we are seeing is that there are more challenges. A lot of scholars like us who are sitting in development studies departments are actually ending up showing the the problems or limitations of yeah. development programs rather than being able to show you actually these are the great successes. Yeah. Successes are still the exception than the norm. Um, and again, I, I don't want to end up by the end of it that oh these development agencies are just bad things I'm not at all I partner with them but yes there's something very fundamentally flawed in the whole system of aid um, which requires much more uh, sort of rethinking so I think there are some interesting efforts in the sense that uh, uh, I think donors are conscious of these challenges and there are certain uh, sort of organizations which are uh, trying to model like different styles of uh, dispersing aid. Um, uh, there, uh, there's one uh, new model being tried which is more about uh, performance based, uh, you know, you have to, the, the participating organization on the other hand has to deliver certain targets be before uh, aid is released uh, to make the aid more efficient. Uh, there's a this trend towards moving towards randomized control trials before they give big aid for any particular project to see whether the intervention works or not. Because you control the, the intervention and the results so I think things are happening but um, but right now it's very difficult for me to say that we have reached that stage where I can give you a good answer to this question. Does the effectiveness of aid depend on the country that gives the aid do you think? Yes a bit of course because uh, 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 a lot of challenges I'm telling you about um, uh, aid is uh, at the um, at the giving end. So you yeah. know how development agencies, yeah, yeah. Uh, how participatory they are, how open they are to alternative agenda, how efficient they are. 
and also how good their in-house staff is because all these projects and all have to be planned um, by people in, inside the agencies and uh, for, again to give different example different over time has become very technical I mean the education advisors might often be PhDs themselves so so in some way different agencies have different capacity other might not be so you know so professionally or technically driven uh, staff in other development agencies um, but um, so, uh, so so yes I, I would say that uh, it depends a lot on the on the giving side because partly another thing uh, which we haven't discussed that much and I'm not that directly concerned with it, with it in this particular book but in general we have a concern about aid is that a lot of aid goes uh, because of political agenda so these kind of issues we are talking about when when we are sure it's not a political issue the money because those are the concerns that a lot of aid is gets wasted because a government wants to influence the other government so aid is just a way to win your lobbying yeah. it's not really to be honest committed to development and so the country can spend the money as whatever they want mainly because the western government gave it to win a certain leverage over it just like us aid for example um, uh, its relationship with pakistan is often seen in that lens that mm. it's it's a way to win certain uh, influence over the pakistani yeah. government so of course but so the kind of technical issues i, I was dealing with you today is are more when we say okay fine those political and all concerns are not there a government is generally trying to sort of invest money in another country yeah. but even then this technical kind of problems are there so uh, so uh, so i would say yes it's a lot that depends on the giving inside for example one last question uh, example i'll give you is that uh, the scandinavian donors yeah. generally have a reputation uh, in the developing country and because um, i've heard it repeatedly that uh, a lot of people say that they are more committed to this human rights kind of agenda and they do actually stick to it more clearly than say some other donors so different donors have their strengths and weaknesses um, and uh, and so that's why it, the outcome can depend quite a bit on their technical abilities, their agendas, um, um, and how sincere you know they are to certain causes. Given that some of your research is also about the cultural differences between mm. the people giving aid and the people receiving aid, do you think that aid is more effective when given to countries with cultural similarities? I would like to hope that that won't be the case, mm. um, because see, uh, the problem is again. Look at, and I would, uh, I think it's not. That's not. Uh, that won't be the answer, because. Um, uh, I'm thinking of the NGO problem, my aid effectiveness yeah. kind of issue. Um, similar, I have done a more in-depth kind of uh, uh, book on it, but uh, articles are full of this concern. Africa, I mean, even Christian Africa, which one would say, you know, West has Christianity and also it's a shared culture, of, at least religiously and all. The NGO culture has the same problem, like this mm. big money coming yeah. in, disrupting local incentives, you know, lack of trust. Uh, as, a, as a result, there's a lack of trust uh, within communities and NGOs break down, uh, cooperation breaks down. So I think that's a quite a universal uh, phenomenon we are seeing across different countries um, so I would say that no similarity of culture won't necessarily resolve the problem it's really the technicalities of it um, the similarity of culture in uh, it can only help build consensus so it might be easier to build consensus on what the objectives are um, uh, if it's a slightly shared culture same religious tradition or whatever but uh, but a lot of these flaws of uh, which are very more to do with the organization of aid won't necessarily be resolved by that um, another trend we're seeing is increasing aid from coming from China, mm. uh, overtaking many Western countries in the amount of aid they're giving. Do you think that Chinese aid could have different impacts compared to Western aid? Yes, it can. And um, uh, of course, uh, the, the, as the critics of uh, Chinese aid have tried to sort of highlight really, oh, that uh, Chinese aid is not really altruistic. But then having said it, I don't doubt um, any of this aid, to be honest, is eventually purely altruistic. Because they say, oh, you know, in Africa, it's too much closely linked to commerce and all of that. But uh, that, those uh, concerns, whatever, set aside, because they have to be 
they have yet to be fully proven uh, what we are seeing is that china has come up in a big way and what i through this china question i like to address a bigger issue that other donors in general are coming up um, mm-hmm. so if for example in the middle east uh, qatar is trying to sort of have an overseas mm-hmm. presence because they are realizing that um, having a development uh, agenda gives you a bit of a low international cloud and historically that's why west has also invested mm-hmm. it's it's partly you know to have this continued power in in the developing world uh, so i think uh, and uh, what we are also seeing even with china uh, but qatar and um, uh, and um, uh, india so far hasn't started doing it this way but like they have started funding a few more things that they do things differently um, uh, and i think partly because they are a bit more they have more, a bit more recent experience of being in a developing culture so i think they understand the 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 mechanisms of incentives better do you understand mm-hmm. because i think when you go from a developing country where a developed world like uh, you are in, you look at oxfam which is very middle income so you think okay fine uh, if you go to islamabad and you fund these ngos which are more like middle income it should be fine but uh, but you cannot the two don't translate into each other equally i mean the the cultural differences um, how middle class is determined in the two contexts so i think in the developing country because china has a more recent history you know it's it's still evolving so i think they have a better sense of how you can distort incentives by not you know giving wrong kind of material incentives i think west so i think they might do it a bit better frankly i think so how has aid effectiveness changed over time do you think i think the only way it has changed is that uh, the uh, of course there's a uh, we must admit that like i'm bringing up challenges continued challenges but there's also been a lot of improvement so that there are much more better ways to monitor aid track aid um, and the all the challenges that i'm talking about donors are conscious of them because enough research has come out now to highlight these kind of issues so i would say that uh, the way it has it is better today is uh, the practice of it might not have improved as much as we want because there's still a lot of challenges um uh, but at the same time there's much more research on effort ongoing within the development agencies and and the broader research community um to to look for better alternatives so that's why uh, i like to say different models are being tried not that we have come up with an ultimate answer yet but at least it's an ongoing effort and we are every day we are learning a bit more how small things can be changed here and there to hopefully have a better impact in future uh, looking towards the future then hmm We're, what we're seeing now particularly in the west is a rise in anti-globalist movements mm. um the election of donald trump in the usa the mm. rise of afd in germany brexit in the uk do you think this is going to negatively impact um aid provision in the future it could because uh, the more these kind of nationalist kind of uh, sentiments grow in the country and especially with the uh, if uh, uh, if you look at countries uh, which will which might be seeing a bit of uncertain economic uncertainty in future um if you look at uk itself for example if after brexit um that the economic uncertainty you know lingers and people become a bit insecure um so then in those kind of contexts of course aid budgets do get slashed um, that always happens um so uh, it it could be that uh we so we because of this nationalist movements we might see a decline in aid um, uh, which uh, like trump has uh, sort of cancelled some of the ongoing programs although those were more to do with the borshan and mm-hmm. that there was another agenda there too but i think there's also i must mention a counter argument within um, within the development studies itself the people who are arguing that aid already has become irrelevant 
So there is that ongoing debate within development right now, uh, where people are coming forward and saying that aid itself already is irrelevant. I mean, if things will move, Western development aid in particular, partly because of this counter, China and other kind mm-hmm. of donors coming up. Um, Turkey, huh, I was thinking of when I was talking to you about uh, Turkey, apart from Qatar, uh, apart from China, Qatar, Turkey is coming up in a big way in Africa as a donor, um, uh, trying to have a big presence in, uh, in welfare work and all of that. So of course, uh, so that way Western development aid is just becoming one player. Mm-hmm. Historically, that was the only player. Now it's just one of the players. But secondly, people are also making this argument that in this globalized sort of more sort of capitalist kind of markets it's uh, development has to happen through other um, routes like economic growth all of that aid is a very small uh, you know like percentage of what is needed um, so that kind of argument is there too so yes at one level you might see a bit of cut in aid but another level you also have to remember that the whole agenda of aid some people are saying in another 10-15 minutes will become irrelevant because aid will be such a small especially western aid will be such a small player in the, in the bigger scheme of things do you think increased improving technology is going to influence aid effectiveness, making it easier to communicate with aid organisations and more direct funding, like a direct aid given to directly to villages? Do you think that's going to change the nature of aid effectiveness? I, I think these are, like when I said to you that interesting things are happening, these are all part of those interesting things. So uh, yes, some things are interesting pilots are being tried of these different kinds. Uh, technology in particular, we are seeing a lot, not necessarily in increasing so far the accountability of donors themselves. Uh, I can't think of actively a quick model like that. But of course, you might have heard that there are um, a, a lot of projects, development projects, donor-funded projects, are using technology for uh, improving services at the local end. One classic example in the education sector is, for example, uh, to monitor teacher attendance, uh, mobile phones uh, are given to one person in the community so that you know like if uh, you can uh, if the uh, the teacher is not turning up regularly they can be reported do you understand similarly in a case of um, mobile phone have been used in another context which is like this uh, Grameen bank and all uh, so even with credit and all uh, certain facilities have become available through uh, mobile phone which the other mice did not have so technology for sure uh, uh, can change things in a, in a in an important ways and aid industry is using it but so far it has not been, do you understand, it's been used to improve delivery of donor projects, not necessarily to improve delivery of donors themselves. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's more about, okay, fine, the project might be a bit more efficient now because of this. Uh, monitoring might be a bit better because of this. Uh, another thing we see is the rise of kind of effective altruism, hmm. uh, particularly it to, in the West, where organisations look to measure how effective um, charity, uh, charity is and advise people to donate based on the effectiveness. For example, the Against Malaria Foundation has been particularly promoted as an effective charity. Do you think this is going to improve aid effectiveness? I think these kind of things... Yes, at one level you might say, oh, these are a bit like audits. Do you understand? Yeah. Like, so find the NGOs and all which are mobilizing funding at this end, um, uh, in order to have certain credibility to this, you know, the central kind of uh, organization which is giving them certain legitimacy, uh, can help. But, it, but I doubt if it will dramatically change things that end because the kind of problems I've been uh, talking to you uh, today are more about how they disperse aid at that end, right? Yeah. So this kind of accountability doesn't normally monitor that for the organizations here you know uh, they might look at uh, normal uh, what i've seen is that they might give you the the potential donors uh, local donors i mean a uh, public which wants to donate the idea that how how much of the budget is spent on administration versus work in the field because a lot of pe- people don't want to give to organizations which are spending too much money on you know on salaries and all yeah. they actually want to help the people on the, on the ground so a lot of these organizations these 
audit kind of organizations are the ones which are just being able to say okay fine it's not spending so much on administration it's fine but that in itself doesn't take care of what they do that end because that is a totally different game that's about understanding local incentives local culture and coming up with a program which doesn't distort local incentives and and that won't improve because of this but but some checks are better than nothing so if sir if at least public is getting a better information about how much say oxfam or action aid and the third party is spending on um, on administration versus actually delivery of service uh, it's good you know public has a bit of uh, can compare a bit there's some level of at least accountability um, so if i wanted to donate money to charity today how would you advise me to do so based on the research you've conducted uh, i think um, uh, I would like to say that I guess uh, people, those who d- donate at individual level, um, uh, I mean, some way, I, one cannot expect too much from them because, of course, they only can. There's only a limit to which you can really explore an organization before you, you know, trust them with your money. Uh, but I do think that yes, the more involved people get with the organization, like understanding about the agenda of the organization that they're working, that are trying, thinking of um, of supporting, um, and uh, and reading a bit more about the issue, um, so that they can assess a bit better that the organization that they're supporting, um, what kind of impact, like what kind of services really delivering the field would be good. But having said it, I, I do sympathize with an ordinary donor that... Uh, beyond the point you just rely on on some big names you know that they will live up to the expectations of uh, like big names like Oxfam and all that what they're promising they'll do that um, but I still think that getting a bit more engaged reading a bit more and all might help people because nowadays a lot of information is out there even on the internet and all so if they're thinking of supporting a campaign in um, in um, Nigeria through uh, NGO here uh, it would be worthwhile reading a bit more and seeing that you know is the is the program that is being put together uh, a bit reflective of the local needs but i do realize it's a big uh, you know for an ordinary donor they're too busy in their lives uh, even to give money yeah. is a it's a big contribution so if they can do much one can understand just a final question what's the biggest thing you look for in an effective aid organization in an effective aid organization like uh, we are thinking of the one which is uh, delivering money delivering right it, not yeah. receiving one so i think uh, uh, it's difficult to, to sort of really pin it down because they can oh, remember organizations can have different scale so a small international ngo which is trying to work overseas a big one which already has a big name and a big donor uh, all three are trying to work overseas in some way or the other uh, but they all might have slightly different kind of challenges but i do think that uh, Partly because of my own experience with um, Diffid, which is the donor I've engaged with the most extensively over, over the years, is this that I've seen a certain prof- professionalization of staff uh, within um, within the agency. Like like I said, more technical staff sit in uh, in house, whether they're education experts, um, uh, you know, health experts or whatever. And I do think that's it, that is a good uh, development because the more in house technical skills they have, um, uh, you, the more they can engage get engaged with the actual technical design of the project rather than entirely relying on an external consultant so i think having good in-house capacity technical capacity is good um but then i think uh, which brings a certain kind of prof- uh, like professionalism to the to the design of the project as well but i think where there's still uh, uh, the other part so technical part is one side and i do give credit for that but the other part uh, remains how open you are um to and how good you are in finding local trusted counterparts uh, and finding that which are the right voices to discuss and engage in a society because i think that's where a lot of these big donors are suffering and sometimes a smaller idea NGO. Uh, I think if I'm not mixing up the name Peace Direct, they were in touch with me. They are, I think they operate out of London. And what they're doing is a smaller NGO, but it is trying to sort of work directly with small community organizations in these developing countries. Um, because they're very keen to first establish that organizations which are already in the ground are embedded, they work with them. <coughs> and they're also conscious of not distorting their incentives and all. 
So I think that kind of learning still has to happen within bigger uh, organizations that how really to engage with the local culture uh, because not just to have this uh, uh, consultation in posh hotels in these countries when you go and come up with this you know superficial consultation but to actually identify who are the true voices in this community because if you don't bring the true voices in then you don't win, uh, get the community convinced of what needs to be done and you, do, um, and you don't adjust your plans accordingly and you end up with a program which doesn't go very far or is not sustainable because it stays as long as your money is there to run it artificially uh, but it never uh, wins uh, you know deep roots inside uh, so i think both technical but this ability to also be genuine open and uh, and openly consultative of the local counterparts is very important okay thank you so much for speaking to the beacon today Masila. it's been really lovely talking to you uh thank you to everyone who's tuned in to listen to the beacon today i've been nicholas chin thank you very much